You know, March is a month where we have been focused and praying that God would give us one person, one person that we could share our faith with, one person that God has placed in our life that we could be an instrument of God to help open their eyes. They might see Jesus as we do. And, and so many of us have written names out on the board. We've been praying over that board. We've been praying that God would do something in them and that God would do something in us. We might be bold and we might proclaim the truth of Christ in new ways. We've given a number of resources, and, and as a reminder, we still have a lot of these invitation postcards. You're like, oh, Brian, I don't know what to say. I mean, just, I don't know how to do it. At minimum, give them an Easter postcard and invite them to join you on Easter, where we're going to be discussing who is Jesus for real. But, you know, some of you might say, Brian, I've been praying. I don't have a name. I don't know how I can be a part of this. Well, I want to give you another option. See, we want to not only make Jesus known in our community, we want to make Jesus known around the world. And here's another opportunity for you. Watch this video. There's a very unique moment in the work that we do here at Free Wheelchair Mission. There's this moment of transformation when we give somebody a wheelchair. It's sudden but a world of opportunity opens for them. And they start to think about, well, maybe now I can get to school. I can earn a living. I can go to church. I can watch the sun come up. I can meet with friends because of this wheelchair. So then they go outside for maybe the very first time with this wheelchair and they smell fresh air and they see the clouds, they see the blue sky and they start to see people, people they haven't seen for maybe years. And they're seeing them eye to eye. They're not looking at their feet. And they think, this is life. This is a gift for me. This is the miracle. And this gift not only transforms the life of the person using the wheelchair, but also the lives of the family members, the caregivers, the whole community. It's such a powerful thing. And this is what we do every time we give away a wheelchair. And we do this because this is what we've been called to do. When I first learned about the worldwide need for mobility, I felt this nudge from God to do something about it. I knew that God had equipped me with many gifts and education as a biomedical engineer. So I started to build wheelchairs, prototypes in my garage, and God helped me. We like to think holistically about our mission, starting from the engineering of the wheelchair, but we don't stop there. We go all the way to the emotional and spiritual well-being of the recipient. We like to tell them, when you're in this wheelchair, we want you to feel you're in God's hands. What I ask of you is that you would keep us in your prayers that we can continue to share the love of God around the world by giving the gift of mobility. Our wheelchairs are an expression of God's grace. They cost the recipients absolutely nothing because they are paid for by somebody else. That somebody else is you. You know, for the most part, the people we serve with our wheelchairs, they've given up hope for ever getting a wheelchair. And sometimes they've never even seen one or heard of one. They're kept alive by their loving family, by sometimes neighbors. And then you show up with this wheelchair. And that from that moment on, it's a miracle. To them, it's literally a miracle to receive a gift from you to them and giving them the mobility that they should have had all their lives. And they've lost it. And now they have a chance. It's a miracle. Thank you. So maybe you're here saying, Brian, I don't know how I can be a part of Reach Month. You know, our mission program to Ecuador is, is maybe one opportunity for you. There's a couple ways you can be a part of that. First, our, our Club 56 group, our fifth and sixth graders have been raising money. Their offering has been going to purchasing wheelchairs. Uh, Ange, how many are we up to now? Do you know? 
Okay. I, I want to say that we're like 10 or 12 wheelchairs at 7, 15, 15 wheelchairs that the 5th and 6th graders have raised money for, but they're, they want to continue to bless others, and so they're going to have a bake sale next Sunday out in the courtyard. All the proceeds are going to go to helping them purchase more wheelchairs uh, so they can gift more people down in Ecuador. And so I had an idea. If you're wondering, Brian, I, I still haven't invited anyone to Easter what about this? Go buy some brownies, go buy some cookies for some well-intentioned fifth and sixth graders, and I'll taste them to make sure that they're not poisoned. <laughs> and then give those with an invitation to your neighbor, a coworker, a friend, family member that doesn't have any place to go to church. You're able to do two things. Number one, you're able to take a step forward and maybe help someone see the glory of Jesus as you do. But you're also able to give the gift of mobility and lift people out of the dirt and that they might not only see people eye to eye, but they may gain a new comprehension of who Jesus is for them as well. You pray with me. Jesus, again, we are at the end of our month, God, where we've been asking you to use us to be a reflection of your glory. God, this, this last week we ask, God, you would do a work in our lives. God, embolden us. Give us courage, give us faith. God, nudge us forward that we might take a step that feels uncomfortable for us. God, it might be a powerful impact on the life of someone else. God, for those names on our board, once again we pray, God, and we ask you to open their eyes. They might see you as we do. God, open their ears and their hearts. And they might sense the leading of your spirit. God, we pray you just... Open their mind that they might comprehend the length and breadth and width and depth of your love for them. God, now we ask the same for us. God, open our eyes, our ears. God, open our hearts that we might receive the teaching from your word that you might continue to grow us as a family to be a pure reflection of you. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, I was thinking this week have you ever thought about how one experience can be perceived in two powerfully and extremely different ways by different people? For example, State of the Union addresses by our president. Doesn't matter what president, pick a president. If you listen to the address and then you listen to both parties' responses to the address, it's as if they heard completely different speeches. One person thought the speech was incredible, amazing, it's the wisest words ever, and then the other side... It's horrible. It's just filled with lies and falsehoods. How about this? Football. There are some people that will skip church so they can watch their favorite team. And there's other people that have just sworn football off because it's violent sport and it's been politicized. I mean, we can go on and on. Interest rates. There are some people who's like, yes, my savings account's finally making money. There's other people like, oh, no, I got priced out of the housing market. And my rent just increased. One thing, one experience can have polar opposite responses. And that's, not, that's seen in no clearer way than the life and ministry of Jesus. Man, when Jesus walked this earth in ministry, there were people that left everything to follow him. And there are also people who fought him every step of the way. Well, the last week of Jesus' life, Mark takes a moment to give us another example of polar opposite responses to the ministry of Jesus. Responses by two different people. They knew Jesus. They witnessed him do miraculous work. They experienced his love and compassion they heard his teachings, but yet they responded in completely different ways. I'd like to show it to you. We're on the fourth day. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark. If you're new with us, that's the second book of the New Testament. Just go to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, flip to the right. You'll get there relatively quickly. Quickly. And we're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. While you're turning there, let me catch you up on the last week, first day. First day was a triumphal entry. 
Amidst all the celebration, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, but amidst all the celebration, we learn there is a gross misunderstanding The people didn't really understand what Jesus was about. But through the next couple days, they would learn. The next day, the second day, it's almost as if Jesus just woke up grumpy. He curses a fig tree. He curses the temple. And we gain a vital and important lesson that the temple and the fig tree are the same. Outside, they look healthy. They boast growth and fruit, but upon inspection up close, they were barren and fruitless. Third day, if people were missing it, you can't miss this one. At the end of the third day, Jesus clearly curses the temple, says it will all be destroyed. But then he gives great teaching and instruction for the disciples to make sure they're equipped to be fruitful as they wait for the return of Jesus. And that now brings us to the fourth day, day of resting at Bethany. And this is what happens, Mark chapter 14. Here's how it begins, Mark 14, verse 1. Now, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking out a season by stealth and kill him, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now, if you've been going through the gospel of Mark with us, you got to know, I mean, this is not a surprise. I mean, Jesus and these religious leaders have been at each other from the very beginning. It says they were seeking how to seize him. That term, seeking, means that these guys were researching ways, they were scheming together, they were hunting down plans to kill Jesus. They were seeking out to seize him and to kill him. That term kill, there's two words in Greek that mean kill. One is murder, one is you, it's like this senseless killing. The other is, is like this justified killing out of condemnation for a crime. That's what Mark uses here. They're seeking, they're trying to strategize ways where they can condemn Jesus to death. See, in their head, it was justified. And again, nothing of this should be surprising to us, but I think what's alarming is look how they're wanting to do it. They're wanting to do it by stealth. They wanted to do it through trickery, through deceptive means. They wanted to do it in a cover of darkness so people didn't know what they were doing. Right there, we begin to get this feeling, I'm not sure, Brian, this is righteous. But again, we read through the first two verses like, Brian, that's nothing new. This is what's been going on. But what happens in the rest of the text, there's two other responses I want you to notice. Two other responses to the ministry of Jesus. The first is a response of devotion. Look what happens next, verse 3. Well, he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, talking about Jesus, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. If you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Man, there's so much in that text. Let me break it down for you. First thing I want you to see is the setting The setting of this great work, look how he starts, verse 3, while he was in Bethany, while Jesus was in Bethany, again, that's where he's, that's his base camp. So where Lazarus is there, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, right? We don't know a lot about Simon the leper. Here's what we do know, everyone agrees, Simon had leprosy. Had If you have leprosy, you don't have a dinner party. And if you have a dinner party, no one comes. Leprosy was a highly contagious infection. It was a death sentence. 
It declared you spiritually unclean. It, it labeled you separated from culture. If you had leprosy, you were abandoned, you were cut off, not just from God, but from society. So most people believe that Simon used to be a leper. But now he's healed. And evidently he had a home in Bethany and and finding out that Jesus is camping out in his hometown, what better way to give glory and honor? What better way to thank the guy who changed your life than to have a dinner party? That's a celebration. And you got to know this is a who's who party. Not only do you have Simon the leper, Simon, I used to be a leper, but thanks to Jesus, he he changed my life. But we also know from the Gospel of John, Lazarus is there. Lazarus was just healed. Just a little bit before. Not just healed, resurrected from the dead. Man, that didn't happen. I mean, here's this dinner party filled with people whose lives have been changed. That's the setting. This who's who, this celebration of the miraculous power of God. But then look at the act. Right there, as they're reclining at the table, right? We're just eating. The party's just getting started. All of a sudden, this woman bursts on the scene. There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. Alabaster jar is a type of jar that was typically carved out of a marble-like stone. Would have had a long, slender neck with some sort of plug at the top. And this jar was filled with very costly perfume. Most people believe that this would have been this woman's dowry, her gift for her wedding, the launching of her new life. This was the most precious and expensive thing that this woman likely owned as she had. This was her present and this was her future. But the text says that in this impatient and extravagant action, she doesn't just uncork the top and drip the perfume out. She breaks the neck and just pours it on Jesus. And we begin to wonder, what what would cost such an extravagant action? For someone, it's one thing to pour it over in a ceremony, you know, ceremonial manner, but no, she breaks the neck in impatience. No, it has to happen now. And everything she has and everything she owns, she dumps it on Jesus. What would possess a woman to pour everything that she is and everything she has on Jesus? Well, the Gospel of John gives us a little hint Put your thumb in the Gospel of Mark, if you will, and flip over to the right to the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament. You'll pass by Luke, wave at him as you go by. You'll go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There's Lazarus. The very beginning, right, heading into that last week. You remember that story, Lazarus? Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. He was sick. They sent message to Jesus. Hey, Lazarus is sick. Come here. They've seen Jesus heal people dozens of times. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Get over here. And Jesus, in this lackadaisical way, says, all right, I'll get there. Waits a while. Hears that Lazarus is dead and says, okay, now it's time. He goes there. One of the sisters of Lazarus run out to Jesus. Jesus, he's dead. Had you been here earlier, you could have stopped it. And that leads up to Jesus doing one of the most notable miracles of his time. Lazarus, come forth. 
The man comes out of the tomb. And Jesus conquers death in front of everybody. Just a number of days later, that man is at a dinner party at Simon, I used to be a leper's house. So they made, made him supper there. I'm in verse 2, John chapter 12. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. That's the other sister of Lazarus. Martha was always a sister doing stuff. You know, one of those people, they just can't sit still at a dinner party. They're always cleaning stuff. They're always moving stuff. They're always serving stuff. Like that, That's me. If you've ever seen me at Thanksgiving dinner, it drives my mother-in-law nuts. I cannot stop. I eat and go right to cleaning. I'm Martha. Then there's Mary. Mary's the other sister. She's always getting in trouble for not doing stuff with Martha. She's just hanging. Oh, I see all the, all the spouses nudging. Their, oh, yeah, see, you're like Brian. I saw that, Joel. But Mary's the one always at the feet of Jesus. Never getting to her chores because she always wants to be with him. At his feet, learning from him. Having her mind blown by the authority of what he does. John tells us that woman, all of a sudden it's Mary. That's her name. It's a sister of Lazarus. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, anointing the feet of Jesus. See, this isn't the kind of perfume you get at Albertsons and you give to your mom. This is like that fancy stuff. You just spritz a little. She took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. I mean, all of a sudden we saw, what would drive this woman? Well, her whole life was changed. Her brother, likely the future head of the household, he was restored, he was revived, he was given new life. Not only is this a step of thanksgiving, but this is a step of faith to Mary. Jesus was her everything. Man, in Mary's mind, why wouldn't I? Break the neck of the vial and pour it out so that everyone would see. So that Jesus would know nothing is worth anything if I don't have this man in my life. Why don't you see one more thing? Look at the end of verse 3. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And look at this. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled. Her action of worship consumed the whole house. You ever meet one of those people? They come into their house and the whole house smells like them for an hour after. They put on my mom's perfume wind song. Wind song. I remember that to the day I die. Wind song. Just smells like my mom. You hug her, your clothes smell like my mom. When she leaves, the house has this faint hint of mom. Mom was here. You ever know one of those people, their life, they just put so much on it on, you can't help but recognize. You walk into a house, oh, Mrs. Benson, she's here. Somewhere. Mary, her action infected the whole house. That got me to thinking, you know what? I think the Apostle Paul said something. Apostle Paul used the same idea of fragrance. The same idea of what Mary did where it impacted the whole house. He uses that same analogy, that, still, that same illustration for what he says in 2 Corinthians 2. Where he says, He says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Man, he manifests through us this sweet aroma. Everywhere we are, Jesus is using us as a perfume. Everywhere we go, and he goes on, he says, we are a fragrance of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, he continues, He says, to the one an aroma from death to death and to the other aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? 
For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but it's for sincerity, but it's from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul says, listen, we are this perfume bottle where God is using us to spread the fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. Like our act of worship, the way we live our lives should consume a room. Or even after we're gone, someone should be able to say, Jesus was here. Got me wondering, how do you smell? How's your life smell? When you're interacting with your children or your grandchildren, do you smell like Jesus? To even after, after you're gone, the aroma of Christ stays on their clothes. How about your friends at work, your area of business, your neighbors, your community? To where you live in such a way they can't help but smell Jesus on you. I wonder how our church smells when people come, maybe not just for church. Maybe they come for homeschool on Friday. Maybe they come for a support group during the week. Maybe they just come for an event. Do we smell different than everywhere else? See, Mary, I think, teaches us something. Man, her action, it wasn't just from her heart to Jesus I mean, everyone within that room could smell it, could experience it. And Paul says some people are going to like your smell and some people won't. And there are some people that smell windsong on you and they're going to love it because of what it stands for because of who you are and the importance you have in their life. There's other people when they smell wind song, they're going to hate it because of who you are and what you stand for in life. In the middle of this fancy dinner of who's who, Mary breaks in the middle in this very sacrificial, very extravagant, this reckless, impatient act of worship for God. She doesn't want to just take time to drip it over his head. No, she breaks the neck of it and pours it out on his head and his feet. She wipes it with her hair and it consumes the whole room. I want you to look at the response. I'm back in now, Mark, where your thumb hopefully stayed. Verse 4 begins with a big biblical but, right? Because you would think that everyone would be like, oh my gosh, look at her. What a, what a powerful thing. Verse 4, but some were indignantly remarking to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? A term indignant. They were angry, vexed, overwhelmed at this pleasure. What were they displeased about? What a waste. Verse 5, this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Mary, how foolish. What a waste. Have you ever heard that in your life? What a waste. You get this great degree and then you use it. To be a doctor overseas where you get paid next to nothing and people look at your life and they go, what a waste. My great grandma heard that. Maybe you pass up a promotion at work. Maybe you pass up a promotion at work because of what it would take out of you. If I take that promotion, I may get all this money, all this great stuff, but it's less time with my kids. It's less time to be involved in ministry. I'm not going to do it. People say, what a waste. You make that extra money. 
You can put your kids through college. You can have generational wealth. What a waste for your life. What good is it to profit the whole world and forfeit my soul? Or the souls of my children and my grandchildren? I think of this week, times where people have looked at my life and said, what a waste. Brian, you could be somewhere different. You stay in Chino, what a waste. And like I said, these are my family. We've grown together. This is what God is doing in our lives. I think so often we look to pour out our lives on Jesus. People outside may look at it and say, what a waste. But if anyone said that to you about giving up your career so you can stay home with your children or overlooking a promotion or devoting your life into ministry when you could have been doing something different or remaining a teacher in public education when everyone else is leaving, and they say, oh, what a waste. If you've ever heard that and you've wondered, I wonder what Jesus would think. Look at his response to Mary. Because again, there's another biblical but. Just when you think that everyone is going to be dissing on Mary because of her extravagant and reckless and impatient offering to God, look at Jesus. Jesus said, let her alone. Because they're scolding her, Right? Everyone's lecturing Mary. Jesus like, stop it. Why are you bothering her? What she's done is good. You're always going to have the poor. You're not always going to have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And people are like, really? Is that what she did? Man, I don't think Mary knew what she was doing. She didn't know Jesus He had said she's going to die. No one was catching on at this point. Mary is just pouring out her life for Jesus, but Jesus used it for his glory. Look at verse 9. He says this, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. He says what she's done is a model. What she's done is a model. Everyone's going to talk about it. When people talk about the gospel around the world and what it looks like, they're going to talk about Mary. It's a notable response. Jesus says, this is a model. Jesus says her action will be talked about for generations to follow. Got me to thinking this week then. If Mary's life is a model, this sacrificial, extravagant, this reckless, impatient offering to the Lord, what does that look like for us? I don't have any alabaster vials. I thought about getting a bottle of Axe body spray and just puncturing it so it spreads and consumes the room, but I was worried about those of you with allergies and asthma might have an impact So he said, maybe let's use scripture. What does it look like to have that type of response to Jesus, this devoted life? Here's three examples. Again, I'm going to say these are just three. Three characteristics. There's more. I just didn't want to take forever going through it. But here's three. Here's one. Matthew 6. Jesus said this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. He continues, said, where the thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. First characteristic, man, you want to know what a life devoted for Christ? Someone who invests of their time and their treasure into the kingdom of God. And you want to know, I mean, that testimony of the doctor that started free wheelchair mission, biomedical engineer, and yet he uses his traits to build free wheelchairs for people around the world. I wonder, 
If someone in his family is like, oh, doctor, what a waste. But to Jesus, that's the fragrance of Christ spreading internationally. I want to tell you as a church, I don't give this up to you. I don't give this verse of, of give to the church out of a lecture to you. I give it out of me. You guys are great at this. Every year. We come and bring, here's what we think God is wanting to do in our ministry. And every year, our elder board comes and says, here's what it's going to cost. And every year you say, all right, let's do it. And every year for 15 years, you've exceeded what we've needed. That's God's goodness, but your faithfulness. So I'm coming to you and saying, thank you for your fragrance of Christ. In the craziest three years of ministry that many of us have known, you are the church helping keep other churches open because of your faithfulness. You are keeping other pastors in their homes because of your generosity and your faithfulness. Man, everybody doesn't know everything you do. But the fragrance of Christ emanates from you. You might be here like, Brian, I'm new. I had someone a couple weeks ago, hey, Brian, I'm new. I don't know where to put this. We don't pass the offering bag anymore. What do we do? So I just wanted to give this. If you're someone who's like, Brian, I want to be a part of it. I just don't know how. Here's three ways. Website, app, if you want a digital thing. If you're new here, download Chino Valley Community Church app. There's information on there. There's ways to give. We have boxes out in the back of our sanctuary, out in the back of the lobby. Or you can just put your check, put your cash in there if you want to invest in the body of Christ. But listen to me. My purpose in sharing this verse isn't to lecture you on giving. It's to thank you for faithfulness. Here's another way. Another characteristic of someone who's devoted to Christ. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I mean, you're committed, you're devoted. She says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Here's someone who is living to reflect Christ, but he's not done. He says, this is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, you want to know someone, a characteristic of someone who's devoted with love or devoted to Christ, whose fragrance spreads throughout culture and family? Someone who's known for their love their love and devotion to God, and their love and devotion to others. Third area, briefly, look, look at what Paul says, his description. Philippians chapter 3 says, Whatever things are gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, nothing compares to what I have in Jesus. Everything is garbage. He said, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He continues he says, the righteousness which comes, well, where do we go? From whom I have suffered the loss of all things, counted them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is in through faith in Christ. Now we go, and the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. And Paul finishes that by being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, man, nothing compares to what I have in Christ Jesus. Everything is garbage in comparison. You know, I know a characteristic of someone devoted to Jesus, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Political party, retirement savings, my job title, nothing matters in comparison to what I have in Christ Jesus. And can you imagine what Chino Valley would look like if half of our community, right? We're saying that 47% of our community, our 10 mile race, has no relationship with Jesus. So let's say 55% don't know Jesus. That's 45% that do. Can you imagine if 45% of our community served Jesus the way that Mary did? Sacrificial, lavish, 
almost reckless, impatient, just wanting to pour everything out because nothing else matters if you don't have Jesus. That would be transformative. First response. First response I want you to see. Fourth day as people begin to figure out what Jesus is about. First response I want you to see is a response of devotion. And God's, and Jesus says, man, people are going to be talking about her for generations as a model of what Jesus wants for us. But there's another response. There's another response that people talk about. That's the response of Judas, what I'm calling the response of disloyalty. Look at verse 10. So then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. He began seeking out to betray him at this opportune time. Responsive to disloyalty, there's two things I want you to notice. Number one, the setting. Mark gives us a setting for what happened to Judas. He says this, Judas, who was one of the twelve, Man, if you're not against writing in your Bibles, highlight that, underline that, because that's an important statement. Judas, who walked with Jesus for years. Judas, who was there in the boat when the storms of life were threatening to capsize him. Judas was there when Jesus calmed the storm. Judas was there when Jesus made the lame to walk and the blind to see. Judas was there when Jesus' compassion over 5,000 men Instead of sending them out hungry, Jesus said, fine, I'll feed them all with some loaves and fish. Judas was there. Judas was there when he forgave the prostitute. Judas was there when he transformed the tax collector. Judas was there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Judas was there when he heard countless teachings of Jesus to the crowd. And Judas was there when he had countless teachings just to the disciples. Judas was there. He walked with Jesus for days, for years. That's the setting. Man, there's only one other person in Scripture that I think can understand what Judas did. And that's Adam. Adam walked in the garden with God. Adam walked with God and chose sin with his wife over obedience to God. Mark wants us to understand, here's the setting. Judas, he, he heard Jesus. He knew Jesus. He was loved by Jesus. He witnessed his power. He walked with them. But look what happened. Judas, here's the setting, was one of the 12. Here's the act. He went off. That term went off. I mean, Judas went off on his own volition. He made the choice on his own. He was not seduced, tricked, or misled. Judas made his decision. After years of walking with Jesus, Judas said, nope, I don't want it. I'm out. That's his response. I quit. I'm done. And it makes us wonder, oh my gosh, what would lead Judas to doing that? Have you ever wondered like, oh man, my life would be so much better if I could just walk with Jesus. I mean, if I saw Jesus raise someone from the dead, I'd, I'd, have, I'd have an easier time trusting my grandchildren to him. And if I heard Jesus speaking with authority and truth the way he did, I would trust the Bible so much more. Judas did. And even after all that, he went off. You ever wonder what did it? Again, the Gospel of John gives us a hint. Let's go back to Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament, chapter 12. Sorry, I was supposed to tell you to keep your thumb there. I forgot. Gospel of John, chapter 12. It's John's perspective after Mary breaks the neck of the vial, pours it over Jesus, verse 4. Jesus Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii given to poor people? Look at verse 6. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. 
John gives us a perspective that Judas joined on as a disciple with selfish motives for materialistic reasons, searching for power and for glory, not salvation. I mean, Judas betrayed Jesus over 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. If you sold a slave at that time, 30 pieces of silver. Sold Jesus as a slave. And, you're, and we look at Judas, we say, oh. But can I tell you, G Judas isn't the last one who shipwrecked his faith over money. Let me remind you of something Paul warned Timothy Timothy was Paul's young protege. He said this, but those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money. Again, that's not talking about rich people. To me, to be honest, it's talking about poor people who want to get rich. Poor people who think all my troubles would go away if I just won the lottery. You ever do research on people who win the lottery? Their lives are not better. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It continues, says, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many grief. Some by longing for it have went off, just like Judas. See, here's what I think. I think in Mark 14, we're given two paths for our lives two models, two examples, one of devotion, one who sees Jesus as everything and is willing to pour out, break the neck of everything they have and are and pour it over Jesus because if they don't have Jesus, they got nothing. And then you have the option of disloyalty. You trust your own power, your own fame, your own instincts, your own desires, your own plans your own goals, your own fears, you trust those over what Jesus has. And you might say, hey, Brian, those are two extremes. What about the middle? Well, the Bible tells us Jesus spits people in the middle out of his mouth. Let me remind you of something else Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30. He said, who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus said, it's one or the other. You're either Mary or Judas. Choose today who you serve. I think the message of Mark 14 is to have us wrestle with two responses of people. They saw the same thing of Jesus. They both were loved by him. They both walked with him. They both lived with him. They saw his actions. They heard his teachings. They experienced his power and yet one devoted their life and one wandered away. Have you picked? Have you made your choice? I don't think it's a one-time thing. I think it's an everyday decision. How are we going to live our lives as Christians, as citizens, and as a church, by the model of Mary or Judas? Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning. God, many of us here come in this morning with this belief in our heart, God, that you're everything. We know about your mercy and your grace. We've experienced your truth and your power. God, we lead and model our lives after you. But then when we look at these two models, these two examples of response to you. God, many of us get convicted. We're conflicted because our lives don't model either. We haven't fully walked away from you. We haven't fully been disloyal to you, but God, we don't really live in this, in this devoted mindset to where we would break the neck of everything we value and pour it and give it to you in, in expectation of you doing amazing things.
So we have many of us, if we're honest, we straddle a fence. Some days we're more like Mary and some days we're more like Judas. So God, I pray. Jesus, I ask, Holy Spirit, will you work in our lives in such a way that we see you more like Mary did? Where God, we're almost reckless in our faith that we're extravagant in our worship, who are confident in our decision to align our lives, to give our lives to you. And God, I pray you protect us from the foolishness of our own heart, from the fears of our life the longings of our flesh, God, that we wouldn't be led astray, that we wouldn't wander off, that we wouldn't pierce ourselves, we wouldn't shipwreck our faith, pursuing something that's just gonna burn away when you return. Jesus, I pray. Hear our prayers now. God, in this moment of just quiet contemplation, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Convict us where we need it. Encourage us where it's merited. And God, hear our prayers of confession and our prayers of commitment. God, may the fragrance of Christ emanate from our lives, from our homes, from our church, for your glory. Now, Jesus, I pray, hear their prayers.